Welcome to Iceland Review. Today we'll be speaking to staff writer Eric Pomerenke on the politics of trade unions and wage negotiations. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? Hi, Ragnar. So over the past few weeks, wage negotiations have been going on in Iceland. Um, how about we begin with you telling us a little bit about what that entails exactly, wage negotiations? Yeah. Um, so this fall, about a third of labor contracts in Iceland expired, uh, meaning that they need to be renegotiated uh, between their respective trade union um, and SA, or Samtuk Atvinalisens, um, which is the uh, essentially the employer's union. Uh, so this is going to be the other major party with which the trade union is negotiating. Um, you know, like traditionally in a labor negotiation, uh, there are, you know, two or three parties uh, given how the system works. There's obviously the union, uh, there's the employer. Um, sometimes the negotiation with the employer isn't directly with the employer, uh, but is with, you know, a union of employers. So, you know, the kind of Corporate interest has also kind of formed their own negotiating body, um, you know, which is also a pretty common system. You see it uh, both throughout the Nordic countries uh, and in the U.S., for example, as well. Um, and then there's also occasionally the presence of a state mediator, uh, if that's necessary. Um, the most current uh, round of negotiations this year has been kind of cast as being especially high stakes, uh, just kind of given some of the volatile conditions in the labor market. Uh, following the COVID pandemic, we've, of course, seen uh, both really high inflation rates uh, because of some of the measures taken by governments to fight uh, the potential economic downturns of the pandemic. Uh, but then given these rising inflation rates, we've also seen rising interest rates. Uh, so it's just been a very kind of tricky and volatile time in the labor market. And so it's been really important um, for these negotiations to come to some sort of productive end. Um, and this has also been especially tricky uh, in the Icelandic context um, because this summer and fall, we kind of saw some turmoil in uh, the leadership of some of Iceland's largest uh, trade union organizations, um, specifically ASE, which is the Confederation of Icelandic Labor, um, uh, Drivas Nidal, uh, the former chairperson, uh, stepped down, and uh, there was just a lot of kind of internal conflict. Uh, they had their uh, their their thing, their uh, Congress um, this fall, and it ended inconclusively uh, after just a lot of kind of infighting. Um, and so the kind of leadership question within ASE still hasn't been solved. Um, the individual trade unions of ASE are still going into their negotiations with SA. Um, but so all of this has just kind of uh, come together to kind of form a very tricky negotiating environment. So I think it would be useful, especially to foreign ears, um, to maybe get some historical context. What's the background to wage negotiations in Iceland and, and some of its history? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to look at the current wage negotiations right now um, here in Iceland uh, and kind of also compare them to what's happening abroad and especially in the American context, uh, some of the just labor market disruptions that have happened um, during COVID uh, have, you know, like we've all 
seen this wave of unionization kind of sweeping the U.S. Uh, we've seen all of these Amazon uh, warehouses and Starbucks uh, locations unionizing. Um, and so there's definitely a way in which the economic disruptions of COVID have kind of given some outsourced influence to workers and they're kind of rediscovering this. Um, and so I think that it's kind of interesting at this time when some people uh, abroad are kind of rediscovering the importance of unions, I think it's kind of important to look at uh, some of the nitty-gritty details of, <laughs> of a union negotiation and kind of see, you know, what makes this work and why is this important. Um, and the historical angle is also, you know, maybe just briefly worth pointing out um, because some of the conditions that prevail during COVID, you know, are similar to the conditions in which uh, some of the most important trade unions arose in Iceland. Um, so ASE, like the Confederation of Icelandic Labor, uh, that emerged uh, in the fallout of the First World War. Um, and, you know, this was a time when the increased wartime demand for production uh, really gave workers a lot of power. It was really important. Uh, for I mean, like, like there is this just wave of prosperity that kind of first entered Iceland after the First World War um, because of the shortages on the continent, and Iceland was able to provide, you know, food both in the form of uh, fish and um, also actually just lamb um, and some some raw materials uh, like um, homespun cloth, wool, uh, these things, and so Iceland was able to kind of step up in some ways and kind of meet increasing foreign demand. Um, and then, of course, after the First World War, there was this catastrophic hyperinflation that hit uh, the world economy. And so during this time of inflation, uh, wages weren't really keeping pace uh, with the inflation. And so, you know, you have this period when labor is in pretty high demand. Uh, there's, there's high foreign demand for Icelandic goods. Uh, and so workers have a little bit more leverage than usual. And then at the same time, their wages maybe aren't rising in ways that they would like or should be rising. Um, so, yeah, you have this moment where people feel really empowered and they start forming unions. And this is the kind of soup that uh, the Confederation of Icelandic Labor, or ASE, arises out of. Um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting because... Um, when we kind of think of the Nordics or the Scandinavian countries, we sometimes just kind of uh, lump them all together as like having the same system somehow. Um, and, you know, like a really important way in which Iceland is different from its Nordic peers is that, you know, following the war, um, all the other Nordic countries really had uh, kind of universally uh, social democratic governments, uh, which is actually not the case in Iceland. Uh, it's really been the Independence Party, which is a center-right party, that's been the dominant party for really the entire post-war period, um, which is interesting. Um, but so ASE, the Confederation of Icelandic Labor, was kind of formally a wing of what was then the Social Democratic Party uh, in Iceland. Um, and so they were actually like not just allies, but they were in some sense the same organization. Uh, and it was only later that they actually kind of split. Um, and since then, ASE, the Federation, the Confederation of Labor, 
um, has kind of been this like battleground in some way for other uh, aspects of Icelandic politics. And so there have been a lot of people, uh, you know, just, just historically kind of like vying for control over ASE. And so even though ASE isn't, um, you know, maybe directly in electoral politics anymore in that it's no longer actually a part of a political party, uh, but kind of influencing control over the Confederation of Labor has historically been really politically important um, because it is by far the largest uh, uh, labor organization in Iceland. Um, I mean, it represents about two-thirds of organized Icelandic labor, uh, 133,000 workers. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's really significant. Um, and the current round of negotiations are really important, uh, just given the amount of Icelandic labor that is organized into trade unions. I mean, Iceland has something like 90% trade union coverage, uh, which isn't the exact same thing as outright membership, uh, but that does mean that their contracts are going to be represented in the negotiation process. Um, About 80% of Icelandic labor is directly organized into labor unions. Um, You know, so all of that's to say that... um, there are, you know, some conditions that are prevailing right now that are a little bit similar uh, to the conditions out of which Icelandic trade unions historically arose. Uh, so that just kind of makes this like a really interesting time to kind of look at, you know, how are these functioning? Um, yeah, as we kind of go into these negotiations. Okay, so we have a lot of labor contracts expiring. And they're expiring under these really tricky circumstances with high inflation and rising key interest rates. So what are the trade unions demanding on behalf of their workers? Uh, well, in short, money. Uh, but it's what form uh, that takes and what form is going to be kind of most amenable at the bargaining table. Um, and so... The most obvious form uh, is just going to be wage increases. Um, There's been a kind of big debate um, among trade unions as to whether flat rate uh, uh, wage increases are are the most effective at just immediately increasing buying power um, or if percentage-based wage increases are maybe better at kind of hedging against inflation because the second you have a percentage-based wage increase, um, then, you know, once you've negotiated that, it's a little bit easier to kind of um, form that wage increase around inflation, right? Um, There is, of course, then a kind of class tension uh, in that debate in that a just flat rate increase is going to more directly help lower wage earners. Um, So this is why you've seen some of the kind of more, um, I would say, militantly class-conscious unions like Effling uh, really kind of uh, double down on the flat rate uh, line. And then you've seen some of the trade unions that represent – you know, more white-collar workers, such as Behel M, the Confederation of Icelandic University Graduates, uh, you've s- seen them uh, kind of go more the percentage-based route because, in general, their members are going to be higher earners, um, and so they're going to see more benefits from the percentage. Um, 
in addition to that, um, there's also been a lot of talk about Icelandic as a second language. Uh, there's been some debate around this. Uh, we've seen, uh, for instance, the very kind of outspoken professor and commentator, uh, Erikur Rokotson, um, talk about the need for Icelandic trade unions to, um, you know, just increasingly in the future include Icelandic as a second language as a bargaining chip. Um, and, you know, this is to, I mean, on the one hand, obviously, uh, just increase access to Icelandic learning resources um, for foreign residents. Um, but you have seen some pushback uh, against that from unions because they believe that they'll have to kind of give up other bargaining chips, essentially, to get these things. Um, so, for instance, we've seen Solveig Anna, uh, the chairperson of Effling uh, Trade Union, uh, reject some of these things in favor of, you know, just straight wage increases. Uh, and, you know, she believes that the best way to just kind of directly increase people's quality of lives is to just, you know, put more money into their pockets. Uh, whereas, you know, I mean, uh, obviously he's not directly um, engaged in the union negotiations, but, you know, somebody like Professor Erika Rukulotson, you know, might say that maybe in the long term it's more important to kind of prevent a fracturing of Icelandic society into maybe two classes of kind of native uh, white-collar knowledge workers uh, and, you know, basically guest workers uh, who have to, you know, variously use English uh, or, like, their other native language uh, in their line of work. Um, Another demand that we've kind of seen um, are, you know, maybe what we can just broadly put under an umbrella of indirect uh, wage increases aimed at both increasing buying power but without directly putting money into people's pockets And so, you know, this category of demands uh, will be things like increased housing benefits, increased child benefits. um, And these are important because these are kind of ways of increasing people's quality of life without as directly uh, increasing the inflation rate, right? So if we don't put money, the idea is if we don't put money directly into people's pockets, but we kind of make their life easier in various ways by giving them, you know, child and housing credits and things like this, um, then we kind of ease the burden on lower and middle income houses while not directly kind of overheating the economy in the way that, you know, maybe uh, consumer spending does by just, you know, putting money directly into people's pockets. So, yeah, these are the kind of main demands uh, that are on the table uh, this round. We have, uh, like, this kind of flat versus percentage rate uh, wage increase debate. Uh, We have this kind of debate around uh, Icelandic as a second language and whether that should be included in the negotiation process. And then we also have these kind of indirect uh, inflationary fighting uh, wage increases. So going back to the quote-unquote tricky circumstances under which these wage negotiations are taking place, um, one of the main issues obviously being inflation and rising key interest rates. What can you tell us about that, Eric? Well, uh, yes, the interest rate has been going up. Um, 
in the end of November 2022, uh, it went up at a further 0.25%. Um, and at the time of recording, it currently uh, that the key interest rate uh, sits at 6%. So this is the one that uh, really kind of directly affects consumer spending and mortgages and things like that. Um, yeah, so these interest rates have, you know, by some, uh, really been kind of taken as a declaration of war, maybe it's not too dramatic to say, uh, on Icelandic labor. Um, the chairperson of Alf Air Trade Union uh, was also especially critical of these, uh, Ragnar. And I mean, that's um, a direct quote from labor leadership. We see it as a declaration of war. Yes, uh, and um, in the direct wake of the interest rate increase, uh, there were even, like, negotiations that were called off. Um, so, you know, like, there was really, um, yeah, I mean, quite a lot of uh, anger and drama around these interest rate increases. And, you know, I mean, rightfully so. It does kind of directly make people's lives harder. Um, and historically, interest rate increases during times of, union negotiations have you know been used as a way to discipline labor uh and to kind of dampen the negotiating climate uh so you know i mean a lot of the critique and drama has been maybe kind of played up in media um and yet there is a kind of uh core of truth to it yeah i mean it seems like um least a, a useful thing to use at the bargaining table um, if you're trying to negotiate for higher wages on behalf of workers and, and parties to your union, that uh, you set the table with this fact that the inflation is rising, mortgages are going up, and um, you're going to have to do something here for us. Sure. Um, and then, of course, on the other side, uh, you know, you have the Minister of Finance, Bjarne uh, Benedictsson. Uh, you know, kind of referring to this as a necessary splash of cold water uh, to fight inflation. Um, you know, I mean, running parallel to this is also the debate uh, in Iceland as to what is actually causing current inflation. Um, many people would just point towards uh, real estate and the housing market as being the primary driver of inflation. Um, and a lot of uh, just speculative investments in Icelandic real estate. Um, there have been some kind of convincing studies uh, that the current wave of inflation isn't mostly driven by wages uh, and that, um, yeah, it really is the real estate market that kind of lies at the heart of this. Um, and and there have also been some claims um, that – some of the wage demands are actually still just bringing Icelandic wages actually back in line with the levels that they actually would have been uh, around uh, just prior to the banking collapse of 2007, 2008. And that actually, in some ways, some of the most recent uh, wage increase demands have, in a way, still just been kind of getting back to a level that they already were. And that uh, it's not the actual wage that's uh, yeah drive, driving the current inflation. Yeah, and, and we've also seen that these interest rate hikes have served to splash cold water on the housing market, specifically with um, statistics coming out, I think, just last month, showing that um, 
purchasing of, of houses and apartments has started to decline, and the number of homes that are being sold over the asking price has declined as well. So um, whatever the case, the central, the governor of the central bank is, is probably right on this point, that rising interest rate will keep the housing market in check, which, as many economists have argued, is sort of the primary driver of inflation in Iceland. Certainly. So to wrap things up, where do we stand currently, Eric? Which um, unions have negotiated and which unions have not? So some of the three largest unions in Iceland are Valfair, uh, Efling, and uh, SGS, which is itself a kind of umbrella organization for other trade unions. Uh, but currently, at the time of recording, uh, Valfair and SGS have uh, reached final agreements with SA. Um and th- a lot of the details of the Valfair and SGS uh, agreement are pretty similar. Um, and I think it's fair to say that uh, there's kind of been a consensus to settle on shorter-term contracts uh, as a kind of compromise during this, n- this difficult negotiating climate. Um, and so instead of the kind of traditional three-year-long contract, uh, we've seen shorter-term contracts signed um, – that are generally retroactively uh, applicable to November of this year through uh, next year. Um, uh, in the case of uh, Valfair, uh, there's a, I believe, six point seven five percent flat rate, or six point seven five percent wage increase, uh, in addition to some adjustments to the hourly uh, table for wage earners um, and some added uh, holiday bonuses and things like this. Um, but notably, uh, the labor union that has not yet signed their contract is Effling. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, maybe kind of fair to attribute that to Anna Solvig, uh, the Effling chairperson, uh, her relatively more um, entrenched and militant uh, approach to negotiating. Well, thank you for that, Eric. And um, just a reminder that these are um, this is a developing story, so for further updates, please visit Iceland Review. Thank you, Ragnar. Okay, and something lighter to take us out, uh, a reader question uh, from Ask Iceland Review. Uh, a lot of travelers might be surprised to know that they can't actually buy uh, some certain cold medicines in Iceland. Uh, so can I take Dayquil with me on my on my trip to Iceland? Well, Eric, the good news is, yes, you can. Um, and for listeners who are not familiar with Dayquil, it's a popular cough medicine that's sold in the United States and elsewhere. And notably to the mild fr- frustration of, of some travelers with a cold, it's not available in Iceland. So the good news is you can travel, albeit with a personal supply of Dayquil or, or some equivalent cough medicine, and uh, a personal supply will um, will define that as no more than 30 days of dosage for personal use. So if you're in Iceland with a cold and don't have access to Dayquil, then your best bet at the pharmacy will be paracetamol, uh, a common medicine for mild fever and pain, which is available under different brand names. Um but there is, I think, one sure cure for the common cold, as you yourself recently found out, Eric, <laughs> which is uh, time and rest. Yes, indeed. I think all of our mothers would agree. 
Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English-language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.